This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. What if I told you that there is an entire library of orthodox, careful, influential, important, reformed books that formed and shaped our entire history? Books on reformed theology, reformed piety, practice on biblical interpretation, biblical theology, covenant theology, commentaries on scripture, books on the Christian life, on sanctification, on worship, and on the sacraments. And what if I told you that this great library still exists, but is hidden from most of us because it has not yet been translated into English? Well, if I told you that, I would be telling you the truth. There is such a library, and I call it Classic Reformed Theology. Casey Carmichael and I are editing a series of translations of these sorts of volumes, not all of them, but as many as we can get to in the time that we have and with the resources that we have, and they are appearing in the Classic Reformed Theology series for Reformation Heritage Books. In September of this year, 2019, we expect to see Volume 4 appear. So far, we've published William Ames, A Sketch of the Christian's Catechism, which is a collection of his lectures or sermons on the Heidelberg Catechism, Caspar Olivianus, his Exposition of the Apostles' Creed, Johannes Coxeus, The Doctrine of the Covenant and Testament of God, perhaps one of the most important books in the history of Reformed theology. And our latest volume to appear, as I say, in September, is J.H. Heidegger, The Concise Marrow of Christian Theology, published in 1697. This is a first-ever translation of Heidegger, of any sort, to appear in English. If you haven't heard of Heidegger, you're not alone. That's okay. My colleague and friend, Dr. Ryan Glomsrud, has written the introduction to the volume, and uh, we're going to talk to him about that in just a second. He's Associate Professor of Historical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He earned his DPhil in Oxford University. He's a scholar of another famous Swiss theologian, Karl Barth. He's done postdoctoral research at Harvard University and written a number of journal articles and chapters on Bart and related figures. He's a ruling elder in Christ Reformed Church in Santee, California, just a little bit southeast here of the seminary. And he joins us now to tell us about this famous Swiss Reformed theologian, Johann Heinrich Heidegger, who lived from 1633 to 1698, and why he matters today and why you should care and why you should think about reading this book. Hi, Ryan. Welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's always a, a pleasure to be in the studio with you. But more sincerely, I do thank you more for... More sincerely? <laughs> Was that insincere? No, no. Okay, uh, all right. I do genuinely appreciate your uh, invitation to participate in this project with you and with Casey. I'm grateful for Casey's translation work and for your oversight over this whole series. And I think it's important academically as well as for Christians and believers. I mean, academically, the post-Reformation reform tradition is this massive intellectual and theological movement. And even though there's a significant and important body of scholarship, there's still a lot to be learned about the post-Reformation period and the theologians. And so I'm grateful for this kind of translation work. And just on a level of Reformed Christianity, it's important for all of us as believers to understand uh, our own tradition and understand our own family history. There's so much we've inherited from all this. And we do things, we say things, we use categories and terms of vocabulary, and we make distinctions. And we've inherited all this stuff, and we don't even know really where it comes from. And of course, it comes from people like Heidegger. It's evidence of a broad 
consensus within theological confessional boundaries. And so everything that's made accessible to us through these translations is further evidence of that stable, solid, and biblical confessional tradition. Yeah, there is such a thing. Sometimes people talk about diversity in Reformed theology, and of course, there is diversity in Reformed theology. But that's not to say that there wasn't a core, right, an identifiable core of a consensus of Orthodox Reformed views and a piety that flowed out of those convictions, that way of reading Scripture, and a way of practicing the faith that also flowed out of those things, that theology and that piety. Right. And it's reflected in consensus documents, ecclesiastical documents that we call the confessions and the catechisms. Well, we'll come back to Heidegger in a moment, but it's been a while since you've been here in studio. And uh, you've been busy, but we haven't had a chance to catch up and talk about these things. For example, uh, last semester, you were on sabbatical. What did you do during your sabbatical? I know, for example, a couple of times we were corresponding, and it turns out that you were in Basel. You were writing back to me. I didn't know where you were, but then it turns out you were in Basel. Yeah. What, what I, were you doing in Basel? Well, I was working at the Karl Barth Archive in Basel, Switzerland, which is now the archive is incorporated into the university library system. So it's part of the Swiss university library system. But the Karl Barth Archive is actually in Karl Barth's house, the last residence he lived in up until his death. And so almost overnight after Barth's death, his house was turned into an archive, into a library. It's frozen in time. His furniture, his books, Everything has been left uh, exactly in place. If you take a book out of the bookshelf, you better put it back in the same spot. Otherwise, the <laughs> archivist will uh, send you packing. Yeah. Uh, so I was working in the archives there, and all told, it was just over a month, but it was in, in two different periods of time. And I love spending time in the archives to be able to look through books for marginal notes, to have full access to all of Bart's correspondence, things that haven't been published in either German or English is really the stuff, the grist for the mill of scholarship. And so, yeah, it was wonderful to spend some time there and able to work on uh, a couple of BART projects and that were in various stages. So, And all of this is going to appear one way or another in some form, right? In one way or another, yeah. I have a chapter on BART and John Calvin coming out in the Oxford Handbook, The History of Calvinism, edited by Carl Truman and... Right. And Bruce Gordon. Okay, that's good. And also a chapter on Bart and Friedrich Schleiermacher, the 19th century German theologian coming out in the Blackwell Companion to Karl Bart, edited by George Hunsinger and Keith Johnson from Wheaton College. Great. And you did your doctoral work on Bart. And I know you've been revising I've been that. rewriting that, I think, almost from scratch again. But I hope to have that coming out soon called Calvin's Free Pupil about Karl Bart and the Reformed tradition. Ah, okay. That's good. So if you want to know about Bart, and we want to talk about Heidegger here, but Bart is a really significant figure. And it's important for us to, or at least for you and for others, to know about him. I mean, I know a little bit about him. It's important for folks to know who he was and what he was doing because he was really massively influential on what happened in Reformed theology in the 20th century and continues to be, right? In terms of influence, scholars compare him to some of the greats in Western theology from Augustine to Thomas Aquinas to Calvin to the founder of Protestant liberalism, Friedrich Schleiermacher. And there's no doubt he's a towering figure in the history of theology, for better or for worse. My particular interest in Bart, though, is his 
way of rereading and recovering, reappropriating and revising the reform tradition in the early part of the 20th century. And so he has really come to set the standard of what counts as reformed theology in the modern period. I think it's important for those of us who are confessional and conservative to understand something of that recovery and revision. Just on a personal level, it also affords me the opportunity to continue to be a student and reader of the Reformation itself, apart from modern questions related to Bart, but just as a scholar of the Reformation and as a teacher of the early modern period, to do Bart and Reformed theology allows me to try to work a little bit in both fields. Is there a seminary committee that we've had in the last three years on which you have not served? You've also been enormously busy here at the A glutton for punishment, or my colleagues don't like me. I'm not sure (laughs) which it is, but uh, now I'm happy to serve however I can. Well, years ago, we had a faculty member who said, you know, that he wasn't very good at committee work and thereby got excused from all all the in-house committees. That's a clever trick. I always thought that was a brilliant strategy. Yeah, we appreciate your service here. For example, you served on the building committee. And um, you were active in that. And so now here, maybe well, just a few hundred yards to our south is this really significant complex of apartment buildings, beautiful apartment buildings, which is now chock-a-block full of seminary students. Theological education is a community endeavor. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Okay, well, let's dive into our guy, J.H. Heidegger. Tell us a little bit about him. Who is he? When did he live? Where did he live? And all that stuff. Well, the first thing to know about Heidegger is that he was a man who believed in the truthfulness of Scripture and believed in the power of the Word to sanctify us in that truth. And I know that because, of all things, I looked around on the Internet for an image of Johann <laughs> Heidegger. And you'll have to forgive me this, but as a scholar who mostly works with 19th and 20th century theologians, there are a lot of pictures and photos and images on the web. And so it's always kind of fun to admittedly superficial in terms of scholarship, but to try to measure the man and see what he's all about. And it turns out there is a old engraving. It probably is an 18th century engraving of Heidegger. He's sitting in a study with bookshelves behind him. He's seated behind a desk. He has an inkwell and a quill and a book out before him, and he's scribbling down in his book. And so I got to wondering, I wonder what he's begun to scribble in his book. So I zoomed in on the photo, and I had to turn the image around, and I was stumped. I couldn't quite make it out. So I did what I think all good historians do when they're stumped. I went down the hallway and asked a colleague. <laughs> and so I went to uh, Dr. Telfer's office and I said, hey, what do you think Heidegger is writing in his notebook here? And uh, we investigated and zoomed in and zoomed out and tried to clarify the image. And we're pretty sure he wrote down John seventeen seventeen, which is sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so uh, thus the first thing we can say about Heidegger is that he believed those things. Okay. Great. (laughs) No, that's interesting. At least it tells us something about how Heidegger was received by those who are making the portrait of him. Yeah, he may or may not have had anything to do with that engraving. Probably not. But uh, what we do know, uh, there's not much written about Heidegger. What we do know biographically is that he was born 1633, not far from Zurich, 
within the canton of Zurich, to be sure, in Barrettsville. And his village, like so many others in that part of German-speaking Switzerland and throughout much of Central Europe, was recovering from the plague. You know, a whole large numbers of populations were decimated by sickness and disease. And so that's the world that Heidegger was born into. Part of the problem of the plague almost certainly had to do with the 30 years war and the migrations of people and the movement of troops from one place to another carrying disease and pestilence with them. He was actually born at a time of some renewed tensions over this 30 year period of conflict. And so it was difficult for him to receive an education, although he did finally manage that. He was educated in Zurich, which was close to being the largest city where he was born, but then also in Marburg in Germany and Heidelberg as well. But just as an example of the difficulties for the Thirty Years' War, for a period of time, Heidelberg, where he did eventually study, was actually closed down that region, the Palatinate, was taken over by imperial troops, not on the Protestant side of things during the Thirty Years' War. And so the university for just over a decade in Heidelberg, this bastion of theological education for the Reformed, was closed. If there was any theological education offered at all, towards the end of that decade, it was Roman Catholic. The Jesuits reopened the university, although not before plundering the library, as you, I'm sure, are well aware. I mean, it's a book collector. You can admire their pluck. <laughs> the papal librarian arrived, cataloged everything, and put the most desirable books on a wagon and sent them back to Rome. But uh, as a Reformed professor, I'm sure you'll agree it's a bit of a tragedy. And, and in fact, those books, most of them were never recovered. The Vatican librarian did send a few back, I think, 100 or so years later. Yeah, where's all this ecumenical spirit? Uh, come on, if we've entered into a new age of ecumenicity, uh, we want our books back. How about that for starters? I guess there's interlibrary loan. That's the best, the best <laughs> Yeah, for the Vatican now. Library. Good luck with that. Yeah. Somewhere I remember reading that uh, they sent back later microfiche to the university. So I don't remember any more than that. It was a long time ago that I read that story. But yeah, it does sort of touch one's heart because you can imagine the treasures that were in that great university library. So he's raised in and around Zurich. Tell us a little bit about Zurich, because we know about Geneva. We know about uh, sort of English Reformed world. We might know a little bit about Heidelberg and the Palatinate. But I guess the listener doesn't know a great deal about Zurich. Well, Zurich was one of the largest and most important Protestant cities to adopt the Reformation early on with Zwingli and his colleagues holding public disputations. And then by vote of the city council, the mass was abolished and reforms began. Zwingli and other Protestant preachers were given the freedom to preach the gospel. And so it was an important city within the Swiss Confederation. So it had a close, important relationship to the Holy Roman Empire, but was not a part of the, the empire. So Zurich was an important city, although it was always a precarious thing, the state of the Reformation, until Geneva joined in the cause and the city of Bern and, of course, Strasbourg. And so the importance of alliances shouldn't be. Yeah, there's sort of a reformed confederation within the Swiss yeah. confederation. Although I should say, though, even though Heidegger was born near Zurich and was finally educated and then taught there for a number of years, during the years of his education and formation as a pastor and scholar, he was probably more connected to the German-speaking reformed world within what we now think of as Germany, the, the confederated German states and principalities. 
some almost entirely forgotten names for us today, but who back then loomed large in theological education. Ludovicus Crocius or Jail Fabricius were crucial in that regard. Fabricius was the rector of the Danzig Gymnasium, which was responsible for educating a lot of Polish-Lithuanian reformers. Well, this is like a prep school in Germany. Yeah, a high-octane kind of. It's not your average high school. It was certainly well on its way towards not my university high school. education. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> and probably not yours. <laughs> no, probably not. No, uh, yeah, so this is a pretty serious place. Yeah, and Crocius was the rector of an important gymnasium in Bremen, Germany, way up in the north in the Baltic area. So you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary, California has good news. We've completed Westminster Village, a beautiful new place for you to live on campus. Open now, Westminster Village features eight residential buildings, 64 apartments, including one, two, and three bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of Westminster Village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they can actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll-free. 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential village. wscal.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. And so this testifies to the existence of Reformed Christianity in Germany. Of international in scope. The Reformed yeah. Church really was international in scope from fairly early on, and that's an important thing to recognize. The German Reform didn't fare very well in the uh, later 17th century and into the 18th century. But when he was there, in the years when he was there, he was still able to get a pretty solid Reformed education. Yeah, his education was certainly theological, but... This would be about 1650 or so. Yeah, 1650s. But even beyond that, he received broad training in philology, which is a discipline that is probably less familiar to us today. It's sort of classics, a study of ancient languages, and included in that, of course, would be biblical studies. So it's something like a classics biblical studies major. It's important to understand that not only for Heidegger, but really for all Reformed theologians, that they were grounded in biblical languages and in the Latin fathers. By the time you get to the middle of the 17th century, Reformed orthodoxy is, to put it in a colloquial way, hitting on all cylinders, that um, it has reached a pretty high degree of development. It has attracted some of the best and brightest minds in all of Europe. These guys are not just systematizers sitting around putting God in a box and arranging things in a tidy way. They're doing serious investigation into ancient texts, extra-biblical texts, uh, reading them in the original language. So we have scholars reading Arabic, scholars reading other ancient languages as well as Hebrew and Greek, and of course doing all this work in Latin. I think that's a really important to keep in mind because the text that Casey's translated is better, I think, 
described as systematic theology, but it's important to know that for Heidegger and for so many others, theology emerged from a close reading of scripture. Yeah. It was biblical studies in nature. Some of the great theologians of the period are really principally biblical scholars. Yeah, that, that, we'll talk about this in a few minutes, I'm sure, but then that material could be harvested and rearranged in a different genre, so to speak, systematic theology. And so one should never think of Heidegger as a systematician without first thinking of him as a linguist and a biblical studies scholar. And a preacher, Right. What was his position in the church in Zurich when he finally got there? Well, that's a little more difficult to know. He certainly was ordained and was a minister of word and sacrament in the Reformed churches, but seems not to have had as many preaching duties outside the university as some others, for example. By this point in the tradition, there practically had to be a kind of division of labor between pastors and professors. When things began at the university or the Genevan Academy, for example, it was still not just possible, but important for pastors and scholars to be preaching regularly in the pulpit and then also to be teaching. But from fairly early on as a division of labor, that became just more challenging. I think Zwingli originally in Zurich held a position, of course, as the pastor of the Grossminster, but also as a professor in the university. And when he died, which is a fairly early date in terms of Reformation history, they found it just too difficult to replace him with one man to do both jobs. And so they wound up hiring Bullinger primarily to replace him as a preacher, Heinrich Bullinger. And he was the antistes to an office. Presiding minister. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't exactly have a parallel in every situation. That's true. And Theodore Bibliander then replaced him him in the university. That isn't to say that Bollinger didn't teach and lecture in the university, but there's a little more of a division of labor there. But these guys still preached fairly regularly. I mean, they may not have preached every week, but they preached with some regularity. One presumes, although I don't know how many of Heidegger's sermons were published or available, we, we have yeah, disputations. That, yeah, that I don't know. But we have sermons, for example, from Turretin. Oh, we don't sure. think of Turretin as a you preacher. You know, Turretin but... would be a wonderful exception, I think, to that rule, who was the moderator of the company of pastors yeah. really until his death. But Witsius was a preacher. Abrockel was a preacher. Fuchsius was a preacher. So I can think of, obviously, a number of folks who were doing academic work, maybe not principally preachers, but fairly active. I'm not suggesting that that's true necessarily of Heidegger. Uh, after this education in philology, biblical studies, he takes up teaching position in Steinfurt, Germany, for a number of years. And during that time, publishes a number of disputations against the papacy, disputations over which he presided in the academy, sort of arranged debates between students. He would set the theses and, and then moderate, which was all part of theological education at that point. During that time, he received a doctorate from Heidelberg, which had been reopened at that point without the books. Um, <laughs> and then in 1665 was called to Zurich, which is more or less a homecoming then for him to be the professor of moral theology or what we'd call ethics today. And so he's in his early 30s now. Yeah, he's a young man and was going to be an important professor there by all accounts. But it was really a tragedy in 1667, just a year or two after he arrived, one of the towering intellectual academic figures within the Reformed churches, Johann Hottinger, an Orientalist, another philologist and biblical studies scholar, actually died in a tragic accident crossing the Limat River in Zurich with his entire family. A boating accident. A yeah. boating accident. The boat capsized and he, the professor, and all of his children, I'm not sure mm. how many children, were drowned. And so it was in the midst of that tragedy 
that uh, they actually changed Heidegger's job description and made him the successor to Hottinger, and he became a professor of systematic theology. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Do we know anything about Heidegger's family life? He was married. After he got married, they traveled. Okay. <laughs> so we don't know we don't know a lot about him. No. About his no. Uh, his family life. Maybe Casey's next translation project could be uh, he has actually a number of autobiographical texts that seem to have been based on journals. I didn't read them or look at them very carefully, but his accounts, for example, he lived with Croesus, the rector of the Bremen Gymnasium for a number of years. And in a household like that, there would be scholars coming to and fro. And so it's the kind of text that would probably give us a better glimpse into the world of a Reformed theologian or student at that point. How was he regarded? How was he received as a writer and a theologian? He was very highly regarded, and his texts, some of which we'll discuss in a minute, were used widely throughout Europe, not just in Zurich, and were used for a number of years. So the fact that he's just now getting into English is not a testament to the fact that he was not of any use and he was obscure and we're not foisting some obscure guy on the world. No, no, not at all. Like I think most Reformed churchmen, he was involved in controversies here and there and so took his lumps with the rest of the Reformed churchmen, but not for you know advocating any outlandish views. He was a mainstream, solid reformed theologian, and that's why his textbooks were used so widely. And if you're thinking of this volume, since it comes from Zurich as a kind of Zwinglian volume, that would not be correct. Zurich theology has, we might say, developed or matured, and it's interacted with reformed theology from lots of other places by the time you get to the middle of the 17th century. Yeah, certainly. Uh, by the 1540s, Kelvin and Bullinger, Bullinger's Zwingli's successor, have hammered out an agreement on the Lord's Supper. 1549. And so, yeah. yeah. And so that most you know characteristic Zwinglian position was almost the ancient past by the time you get to Heidegger. So, so this reflects this kind of uh, growing consensus among the more major voices in Reformed theology. So what kind of book is this? The title, as we're translating it, is The Concise Marrow of Christian Theology. It's composed of 28 chapters, and at least in the text that we have, it's not the published text yet, but, you know, give or take 157 pages. So it's a relatively small volume. Uh, we might even call it a handbook. So the listener shouldn't think that, well, if I get this volume or if I read this work, I'm going to be overwhelmed by a, a giant technical work. You know, I really appreciate this text in part because it's so odd. Almost nothing about it will strike a modern reader as something they would predict. It's short and concise, and that doesn't even really do it justice. It's almost like a kind of abbreviated set of footnotes. It's an abbreviation of an abbreviation, right? Yeah. And so just to get a better handle on the text that Casey's translated, it has to be thought of, if not read together with two other works. So it's one of three works that together, I suppose, constitute Heidegger's major contribution to the Reformed tradition. And just to list them in order of publication, there is a Marrow of Christian Theology published in 1696. There's 1697. This text that Casey's translated for us and that we're talking about today is the Concise Marrow of Christian Theology. Or the Marrow of the Marrow. Or the Marrow of the Marrow. And then in 1700, there's the Body of Christian Theology, which is the large system as a whole. So within four years, these three different books are published. There's a small work 
work, a medium work, and a large work. The small work is the summary of the summary. The medium work is meant to be a summary of the major body of Christian theology published in 1700. And so it wasn't unusual for Reformed theologians to do this kind of thing, and it isn't unusual for them to not necessarily publish them in any predictable order. In Heidegger's case, the medium-sized volume came first, and then the abridgment of even that, the summary of the summary, came second, and then the full body came last. That was Not because it was written last, but almost, yeah, that's right, it was posthumous. Almost certainly the large volume predated the other two, but for reasons of perfecting and editing was probably held for publication until last. We can think of, um, for example, the big Burkhoff, and then there's uh, the manual, and that's the medium Burkhoff, and then there's the summary, which is the little Burkhoff. So that still happens. And I think there's a big Horton, right, systematic. I think there's a somewhat smaller version. I don't know if he's done three yet, but at least I think he's done two, at least two different versions. Yeah, I think that's uh, a so we're helpful still, way of thinking about it. We're still doing that. Yeah, big Horton, medium Horton, little Horton, and uh, big Burkhoff, medium Burkhoff, little Burkhoff. And, you know, it's, I think, important to recognize that Heidegger was in some respects summarizing not even his own larger work, but Jakob uh, Alting of Groningen, another important theologian who's probably even less well-known than Heidegger. And this kind of thing wasn't uncommon. As you know, Amandus Polanus wrote one of the most substantial systems of theology. Yeah, well, that's maybe one of the major parts of that library that I was talking about that has yet to be translated. And he summarized his own volumes, but then his close companion and colleague in Basel, Johannes Wolebius, summarized even Polanus. Yep. And so that has been translated in the Beardsley volume, the... Uh, Reformed Dogmatics. And the Reformed Dogmatics. Yeah, which you can get that still. At the SEM here, we use for one of our courses an abridged version of Beardsley that has the Fuchsius chapter in it and it has Wolebius in it. The Compendium of Theology, which is Wolebius's summary of Polanus. And so now with the Heidegger translation, we can read Heidegger's own thought, of course, but also it really is meant to be a summary of Jakob Alting. So Heidegger really only intended this summary of the summary, the smallest volume, to be for the sake and use of beginners. It is meant to be just a primer or stepping stone. And so that's why you have to understand all three volumes together, because the book is filled with internal cross-referencing. Yeah, which we preserved in our edition. So if ever there is an edition of one of the larger volumes, or particularly of the medulla, Right. We'll be able to go back and forth. That's right. And, you know, those kinds of notations alert readers to the fact that Heidegger is working in a very specific context or a very specific genre of writing. He's really thinking and operating the world of reformed humanist pedagogy. He's not engaged in modern philosophies or the philosophical debates swirling around Descartes or Spinoza. That was happening, but that wasn't really Heidegger's interest. He's a teacher of other teachers and so is producing this book to be a kind of study guide, a way into Reformed theology to provide basic categories and definitions so that the reader can advance to the next level. This ends part one of our discussion. Join us next time on Office Hours as we conclude our discussion of J.H. Heidegger, late 17th century Reformed theology, and the concise marrow of Christian theology. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.